0: So far, we have now covered the fundamental keys to understanding Bible prophecy. We've also established the overall framework of Bible prophecy. First, the first coming of Christ, a suffering Saviour, concluding with his death and resurrection. Second, the present church age, the mystery. Third, then comes the rapture of the church. Fourth, then it will be the tribulation. The day of the Lord, the time of birth pains, lasting seven years. Fifth, then, the second coming of Christ, in power and glory, as King of kings. Then sixth, the messianic kingdom, the millennium, lasting a thousand years. Then seventh, comes the destruction of this universe, and the great white throne judgment. Then eighth, finally, we enter the eternal state, in a perfect new heaven and new earth. Next, we will study three Bible prophecies that have a special importance, as they are foundational to understanding the prophetic scriptures as a whole. First, we will look at Daniel's 70 weeks. Second, we'll look at Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And third, we will look at the Book of Revelation. First, we'll study Daniel's 70 weeks, which are in Daniel nine twenty four to 27 This is a masterpiece of prophecy, giving the exact time of the Messiah's death and resurrection, proving that Jesus must be the Messiah. However, it's also the most difficult of the prophecies, requiring careful study, which will yield rich rewards. In fact, I've written a separate book all about Daniel's 70 weeks. The background to this prophecy is that Israel had been taken into captivity to Babylon. When Babylon fell to Persia... Daniel was inspired to pray for God to restore Israel according to his promise. God answered his prayer by giving Daniel a prophecy, giving the timetable leading up to the coming of the Messiah. For ultimately, it's only the Messiah who can restore Israel. So Daniel 9.24 starts by saying, 70 weeks are determined for your people, that's Israel, and for your holy city, Jerusalem. Now, a week means a seven, so it literally reads seventy sevens, which is four hundred and ninety. It's generally accepted from the context that sevens of years are intended. So this prophecy is saying that God has allocated four hundred and ninety years to fulfill his purposes for Israel. He gave Daniel a countdown of four ninety years to the Messiah. This is a real test and proof of who the true Messiah is. It says seventy weeks are determined. The word determined means cut off It's used in carpentry, as a carpenter measures and cuts off a piece of wood that is 490 centimetres long, so God has measured and marked out a single predetermined period of time of 490 years, leading up to the Messiah. Although it later divides this time period into three distinct parts, verse 24 says that they nevertheless constitute a single period of time, not separate periods of time, separated by an unknown interval. That is, it's like one piece of wood of 490 centimetres, not three pieces with gaps in between whose lengths add up to 490. Then the prophecy goes on to tell us six things that the Messiah will accomplish by the end of these 490 years. These naturally divide into two groups of three similar things, corresponding to the two comings of Christ, first as the suffering Messiah and then as the king, the kingly conquering Messiah. The first three things describe what he would do as the suffering Messiah. Daniel 9.24 says, Seventy weeks are determined, first, to finish the transgression, second, to make an end of sins, third, to make reconciliation for iniquity. The first group of three things are a perfect description of what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection in making a final atoning sacrifice for our sin. These three accomplishments of the Messiah are the answer to the three levels of man's sin problem. First is our personal sins. Second is the sin nature that we inherited from Adam, which causes us to commit sin. Third, even deeper than that, is our legal state of sin in Adam, otherwise known as original sin or imputed sin. Adam, you see, was the head of the human race, and so when he sinned, simply because we were in Adam when he sinned, his sin was imputed to us, or put to our account. This is explained fully in Romans 5, 12-21, which also gives us the good news, that the reverse happened when we accepted Christ as our head, and as a result we were put in Christ. At that moment, his perfect righteousness was put to our account, simply because we're in Christ. The three expressions in Daniel 9.24 say that the Messiah's atonement will make provision for all three problems, thus providing a perfect provision for man's sin. First, it says, he will finish the transgression. This refers to a particular, unique sin, which must be the original sin of Adam. Thus, Messiah will put an end to the imputed sin from Adam. Second, it says, he will make an end of sins. This means he will also provide forgiveness for all our personal sins that we commit. Third, it says, he will make atonement for iniquity. The word iniquity refers to our sin nature. So, he will also provide salvation from the inherited sin nature in our flesh. The prophecy says the Messiah will do all this by the end of 490 years. The next three things will be fulfilled when the Messiah establishes his kingdom. That's the next part of verse 24. It says, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. First, to bring in everlasting righteousness is literally to bring in the age of righteousness, which is a reference to the messianic kingdom. The Messiah will establish his kingdom. Second, it says, to seal up vision and prophecy. This means he will bring all the Old Testament prophecies to their fulfillment. And again, he'll do this in the messianic kingdom. Third, it says, to anoint the most holy place. And this speaks of the anointing of the millennial temple described in Ezekiel 40 onwards. Again, this will only happen in the messianic kingdom. So in line with other prophecies of the suffering and glory of the Messiah, this predicts that when the Messiah comes, he will first restore Israel spiritually through his atoning sacrifice, and then he will also establish his kingdom. Moreover, it says that he will accomplish all of this within 490 years that he's measured out for Israel on her clock. Thus, the prophecy is saying that Israel has 490 years left on her clock for the Messiah to accomplish all these things. Now, immediately, you might be aware of a problem. Although Jesus did fulfill the first three right on time, he hasn't fulfilled the second three. And obviously, more than 490 years have passed. And we'll solve this prophetic puzzle in due time. Daniel 9.25 gives the starting point for this messianic countdown of 490 years, saying, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... Now when he said, so you are to know and discern, he's indicating that you'll have to put a bit of study into this prophecy... Likewise, when Jesus quoted from this prophecy in Matthew 24, it says, Let the reader understand. The final countdown to the Messiah starts, according to verse 25, it starts with a decree to rebuild Jerusalem as a city and to restore its governmental authority as the capital of Israel. Now, there are four possibilities, but only one really fits the bill. I've put a full explanation of this in my books, Daniel 70 Weeks and the keys of time. The first possibility for the start of the 70 weeks is the decree of Cyrus in 537 BC, soon after Daniel prayed. However, this decree only permitted the rebuilding of the temple. It did not mention Jerusalem. The second possibility for the start of the 70 weeks is, is the decree of Darius in 518 BC. However, this was simply a reactivation of Cyrus's decree to build the temple. The third possibility is the Artaxerxes decree to Ezra made in his seventh year, that's in 458 BC, and it's recorded for us in full in Ezra chapter 7. Some dismiss this decree on the same grounds as the previous two, saying it only applied to the temple. But although the beautification of the temple is a major part of the decree, closer study reveals and that it perfectly fits the requirements of Daniel's prophecy. You see, it released Ezra to restore Jerusalem as the center of government for Israel, as is clear in Ezra seven twenty-four to 26 And it also released them to build it up physically, as Ezra de- declared in Ezra 9-9, which says, In our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving to raise up or repair the house of our God, and to restore or rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Taking this decree as the starting point leads to a perfect fulfillment of Daniel's 70 weeks. Ezra 6.14 says, And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel, and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Here we see the single command of God in heaven is given in three stages on earth. So only when the third stage was actually given on earth was the heavenly decree fully manifested on earth, confirming that the Artaxerxes decree is the starting point of the 70 weeks. You see, if you're paid for a job in three installments, you can't say you've been paid until the third part has been paid. So God's command for restoration was partly given through Cyrus, part through Darius, and the final part through Artaxerxes. Only when Artaxerxes did his part was the decree fully given in the earth, and so this gives the start of the 70 weeks. Finally, we should mention the fourth possibility, the permission given to Nehemiah to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. That's in 445 BC. This is recorded in Nehemiah 2. What happened with Nehemiah can only be understood in the context of what had previously happened with Ezra 13 years before. Based on the Ezra decree, they started to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls, but their local enemies persuaded the king to make them stop. When Ezra left, Nehemiah expected Jerusalem to be rebuilt. But when news came to him that the walls were broken down, he was distressed. God had raised him up to be the king's cupbearer, a position of great trust, as he was responsible to prevent any poisoning of the king. Nehemiah asked permission to return and rebuild the walls according to the original decree of Artaxerxes. Thus, this was not a new decree, but simply permission given to Nehemiah to go and implement the original decree of Artaxerxes. So, now we know the starting point for the 70 weeks was the the decree in the seventh year of Artaxerxes given to Ezra in Ezra 7. We also know the exact date this decree came into force. First of all, the reigns of the Persian kings are well established, so we know it was in 458 BC. Also, Ezra 7.9 tells us that it was on the first day of the first month. That's Nisan I. Because Israel's months are based on the position of the moon, it's possible to calculate the day of the new moon, and it was April the 3rd on our present cal- calendar. So Ezra was released to return to restore Jerusalem on April the 3rd, 458 BC. So this must be the starting point for the 70 weeks. Let's do a quick calculation. Going forward, 490 years from 458 BC takes you to 33 AD. In doing this, you must take into account the fact that there is no year zero, for the year after 1 BC is 1 AD. Now, AD 33 is the very year when Jesus made atonement for our sins and rose from the dead. It's even better than that. If the decree was activated on April 3rd, 458 BC, then the 490 years end on April 3rd, AD 33, on our calendar. We will see that this is the very day of Christ's resurrection. This gives amazing and irrefutable proof that Jesus is the true Messiah. It's possible, you see, to know exactly when Jesus died and rose again. He was crucified and buried on a Friday, the day before the weekly Sabbath. He died as our Passover lamb on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan, when the Passover lambs were slain. He rose on the third day, that is, on Sunday, in fulfilment of the Feast of first fruits, which were always offered on the first day of the week, that is, Sunday. Thus he had to die in a year when Passover, Nisan the 14th, was a Friday. The start of Jewish months can be astronomically calculated, as they are based on the appearance of the new moon. The only two years that satisfy this requirement are AD 30 and AD 33. Moreover, thus, the Bible gives us two signs in the heavens, both of which happened on the day of the cross, by which we can know it was AD 33. We know from the gospel accounts that the sun turned to darkness at noon on the day of the crucifixion. This was a fulfilment of Amos eight nine, which says, It will come about on that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. We have even secular records by Roman historians that also record this supernatural darkness. One of them, Phlegon's Olympiades, even dates it. He says, In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was a great eclipse of the sun, greater than had ever been known before, for at the sixth hour, that's noon, the day was changed into night, and the stars were seen in the heavens, and an earthquake occurred. This actually dates it to the year of 33 A.D. In Peter's sermon, seven weeks later on the day of Pentecost, he pointed to a unique combination of two signs in the heavens, one natural, one supernatural, that had been recently fulfilled, just as Joel had prophesied, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Acts 2, 16 and 17 says, Peter says, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And then in verse 19 it says, And I will show wonders, or signs in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. Verse 20 says, And it describes the signs in the heavens. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord comes. Verse 21, he says, And it shall come to pass, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We usually just focus on the outpouring of the Spirit. But notice Peter quotes the whole of Joel's prophecy from Joel 2, verse 28 to 32. Not just the part about the Holy Spirit and he claimed that it had all been fulfilled through recent events. Now we know that the first sign in the heavens, the sun turned to darkness, that di- that took place at noon, when Jesus was bearing our sin on the cross. This was a supernatural sign, and as a sign it must represent something, providing a picture of what was happening, getting our attention, and revealing the meaning of it. And during the first three hours on the cross, you see, Jesus was offering himself as a sweet-smelling burnt offering to God, offering up his righteousness so that we could receive it. During this time, the sun was not blotted out. But then at noon, something dramatic happened. Luke 23:44 tells us it was now about the sixth hour, that's noon, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's three o'clock, because the sun was darkened. In the darkness, Jesus cried out, "'My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?' You see, from noon to three o'clock, when he died... Jesus took all our sin on himself and he became our sin offering completing the great exchange of our sin for his righteousness. God proclaimed this in the heavens by blotting out the sun as a sign picture of what was happening to Jesus on the cross. Just as the son of righteousness was being made sin with our sin bearing the blackness of sin on himself, so the midday sun was made black representing the fact that the son of God the son of righteousness was being covered with our sin. Since we know the first sign in the heavens was fulfilled on the day of the cross in AD 33, we should have confidence that the second sign of the moon turning to blood was also fulfilled. Now this was a natural sign. The moon turning to blood, you see, is a standard language for a lunar eclipse when the shadow of the earth creates a blood-red moon. The redness is increased if there's a lot of dust in the atmosphere, as there was on the day of the cross because of the great earthquake that took place.